Back in the early 1960s, the world took note of the decadence of life in the Italian capital of Rome, in Fellini's La Dolce Vita. Inspired by two major political sex scandals of the era, the film would go on to win the 1960 Palme d'Or in Cannes, depicting a Rome that was ultra-sophisticated, ultra-modern, and ultra-decadent. Fifty-plus years later, my guest, Professor Roger Freeland, would decide to move to Rome with his wife and adolescent daughters because he saw in it an antidote to America being awash in sexuality, modernity, sophistication, and decadence. How have the tables so drastically turned, and what does it say about the state of love, sex, and popular culture in the 21st century? Roger Freeland is a cultural sociologist. He's a professor of religious studies and sociology at UC Santa Barbara and New York University. It is my pleasure to welcome Roger Freeland here to talk about Amor, an American father's Roman holiday. Roger, thanks so much for joining us. It's my pleasure. Talk a little bit about the decision that you came to to make this move. What was the earliest notion that you had that you were going to do this? Well, we'd taken our twin daughters, Hannah and Sarah, to Rome when they were three years old and had not yet been toilet trained. <laughs> and uh, uh, we'd gone for a year, a sabbatical year, and uh, I just, I just loved the city, and I loved in particular the way in which um, children are celebrated, the way in which uh, they're there in public space, you know, scampering between their parents' legs uh, late at night in cafes and in the piazzas. And I, I love the sort of erotic fizz of, of everyday life in Rome, the way flirtation was, was everywhere and, and how sensuous the place was. And so, you know, Maria Montessori said that uh, adolescence uh, is really a, a waste and children should go out and work someplace. And she was from Rome. And I thought uh, Rome would be a, a great place to, to take the girls uh, during their middle school years and to, to raise them there for, the, for those two years. Uh, you know, Rome seemed to me a place where family life was very, very strong. And, um, you know, I, I was, we were coming from a world where, you know, families are all around us were, uh, were falling apart. And, uh, and it looked like a, a wonderful parallel universe uh, and a refuge. And it's interesting to think of it in this broader 50-year arc that Rome was once a place that we did think of as having a higher divorce rate, as being more decadent, of being very different than, than the sensual Rome, that the kind of Rome that, that you were looking at. Yeah, and that's, a, the, for me, the fascinating thing was, you know, in, in the, uh, the, the novels of the 19th century, uh, it's the American, uh, the young American who becomes degraded and corrupted <laughs> by going to Europe and particularly to, to Italy and, and France. Uh, and now uh, it is uh, the reverse in the sense that it's the American kids who are uh, drunk in the, uh, in the piazzas who have, uh, you know, anonymous sex or sex without very much feeling or intimacy, let alone love, whereas the Italian kids are the ones that are, um, the Italian kids are the ones that are romantic and are having... Uh, relationships and uh, and making commitments and 
so yeah, there is this there is this reversal, and you know their divorce rate is tiny compared to uh, the American divorce rate. These are families that uh, that if you form them, they stay together. Uh, you know, there's a sense in, in Italy that uh, the children deserve to uh, be raised with a mother and a father. And so once you have kids, um, it's very unlikely that you will divorce. In the United States, it's like the reverse. The more kids you have, the more likely you are to to divorce. So, yeah, there's this, there, there is this uh, reversal that has, that has taken place. And much of your decision came not only from your love and appreciation and all the positive things that you said with respect to Rome, but also this sense of what was taking place, particularly in the world of adolescence here in the U.S., that it was as much a reaction against that as it was this positive feeling towards Rome. Oh, yes. It was, there's no question it was a sort of uh, it was a flight um, <laughs> and a fright in that... Um, you know, I, I looked around uh, at uh, what was happening to the children of my friends, and uh, what what my as, you know as my as my daughter started to uh, head towards uh, puberty, I looked around at what the kids were doing, and the rise of the hookup hookup culture just uh, astounded me, and um, uh, which involved the uh, you know the uh, Increasing eroticization of youth culture, uh, and this, this other reversal from—and here I may be just nostalgic and and uh, and wrong—but my sense was that, you know, as someone who went through the sexual revolution, you know, the thing that we—the thing that was uncertain for us was was sex. The thing we took for granted was love, and now among a lot of young people. It's the reverse. The thing that they take for granted is sex. The thing that's uncertain and almost unbelievable is love. And so a rather large percentage of all young people's sexual encounters are without very much affection and even anonymous. Um, and so, yes, I was, I was hoping to flee that. And in fleeing to Rome, how much thought did you give to this notion of the tables having reversed, essentially, over 40 or 50 years? And the way those things that, that you saw at the revolution here and now sort of transformed, transmogrified over there? At the time, I didn't really think about it. Um, I just knew I liked, you know, the landscape and the safety of its streets and the fact that families seemed to be strong uh, and uh, I, I didn't think about it historically. I only started to think about it as a result of watching it and living it and worrying about my daughters and then teaching students in Rome and in the United States. Talk a little bit about the students in Rome and what you got from them, what you started to see in them. Well... Uh, I taught a course called uh, Love, Sex, and God uh, to them. And, um, you know, the, o the OC was playing, uh, was selling on newsstands. It was in these little plastic containers hanging like, you know, fish or candy from the awning. And the, the Roman students were fascinated by this because the idea that 
they, uh, young people would spend their days, uh, you know, ha- hanging out uh, semi-naked in hot tubs and going shopping uh, in large groups. Uh, you know, they just uh, they found that unbelievable, and they wanted to they wanted to know about you know American youth culture, and they'd heard about the hookup culture, and they found it uh, unbelievable, uh, and. What they found unbelievable was uh, that you would have sex with strangers, uh, that, um, that the ideal state wasn't to be in love or to be hoping to be in love. Um, they, the idea that uh, a young woman would give a blowjob to a, a boy uh, who she hardly knew was like incredible to them. And the thing that was most astounding to them was that you would be inebriated, that you would be drunk while you had sex. And as one of them said to me, he said, why would you do that? That would ruin it. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so, they, so they wanted to know, um, once we started talking about this, uh, they wanted to know how they were different. And so this is where my survey work that I then took to American students began. They wanted to know what they were like. And so we designed a little survey and we did a snowball sample at the University of Rome, La Sapienza, and um, went out there and got, you know, a hundred or so respondents. And, you know, we found out that, first of all, uh, that they were much more romantic than the American students. It was a small sample, but still, and other data should support that. Um, and that they didn't think uh, virginity was an outdated value. Very few of them were virgi- virgins, but they still respected virginity. Um, and one of the most striking things that uh, we found was that um, the students who believed in God, their sexual profiles were no different. They had they done things, everything that those who didn't believe in God had done. But what the big difference was that they loved their last sexual partner, and the effect was huge. And so that was one of the, that was one of the things that really intrigued me. And so I decided, much to the chagrin of my daughters, when we got back to the United States, that I would go on Facebook and see whether I could do a, a survey using Facebook. And my first... Uh, my first uh, banner ad, which is what we used to, to get respondents, said, uh, when was the last time you got laid, prayed, said, I love you, tell us about it. And in a week, I had a thousand people without being paid, uh, you know, respond. And to my absolute stupefaction, we found exactly the same thing, that students, um, students who uh, believed in God uh, were just as likely to have had sexual intercourse or other kinds of sexual acts. But the big difference, again, just like in Rome, was that people who believed in God uh, were more likely to have loved their last sexual partner. So I'm still trying to figure that out, but I think it's a really important uh, finding. Given the pervasiveness of Western popular culture, and that in many ways the popular culture that is so much a part of the U.S. also is part of the popular culture of Europe. Where is the breakdown? Where does it change fundamentally? What underpins that as you see it? I think 
you know, popular culture certainly has uh, a big impact. Um, but, you know, there are limits. There are limits. And um, I think the, I mean, one of the limits uh, was on view when Madonna came to, uh, uh, to Rome and did her, her big show where she dresses up uh, on a uh, glittering glass, a mirrored crucifix as uh, Jesus, you know, as Christ, as a Christ figure. Mm-hmm. And, you know, these Roman kids are, uh, you know, they want to be hip, they love American music, but they couldn't go that far. And everyone went silent. And they, you know, I talked to a lot of kids who were there, Roman kids. They stopped dancing, you know. So I think it's, I think it's still selective. I think that the readings and responsiveness to uh, American-dominated popular culture vary um, by country. Not that it doesn't have a big impact, but uh, I think uh, there's a lot of variability in and responsiveness to that culture. What conversations did you have? What did you glean from talking to the parents of your students, the parents of young people in in Rome, for example, and how they saw the world differently, how they saw their adolescent children differently? Well, um, Roman parents are living with the pathological consequences of their system. Uh, it's the strength of their families and the power of their mothers and uh, the continued uh, salience of, of romance that's allowing uh, the uh, economy to eat the youth, so to speak. Uh, Italy is a stagnant country, economically stagnant, and it's stagnant uh, in significant part, not only due to the politics, but to the ways in which families adapt. And the Italians talk about the, the long Italian family. It's getting longer all the time in that the children are living at home for longer and longer periods of time. And you have mothers who are, are you know, still feeding their children, particularly their sons, washing their underwear, uh, and you know they want they want grandchildren, and they worry about uh, their children's ability to grow up and to go out and become you know independent functioning adults. You know, in the United States, we sort of eject our children. You know, the the sign of adulthood is that you can be on your own. The Italians don't have that kind of of mindset, but. You know, the way in which uh, this is, is working out in terms of, of gender politics is, is really significant because increasingly large numbers of um, uh, Italian women do not want to be mothers because they don't want to be their mothers because they know what it means to be a good mother in Italy. In Italy. And uh, a lot of boys... Um, young men uh, are delaying uh, for a very long period of time becoming fathers because they can't get the kinds of jobs that are necessary in order to be able to survive. So the Italian parents are 
are really worried about uh, family formation uh, and talk less about the, the gender questions and the, question, the questions of love. Is it your sense that as these millennials start to age, as they do form families, as they do form these permanent bonds and, and do move out on their own, which clearly they will at some point, that these cultural influences that we've been talking about will remain with them or will it somehow shift or will it be different with their children, with the next generation? I don't know. I don't know. I think that, uh, I think that the whole Italian system, the whole Italian romantic mother-centered system in which women have enormous amount of power, uh, but it's a very particular kind of power. It's a sexual power and a maternal power. Women, there's a very low level of female labor force participation. Very few women are figures in politics in the boardrooms of Italian corporations. Um, but it's going to, they're going to have to shift uh, the, the gender order because this, this romantic system, this, fa- this strong family system is based upon male power. And the young women uh, are not going to tolerate uh, continuing to live in that kind of system. Um, how they're going to change it um, is not clear at all because Italian politics are immobilized. They're a mess. Uh, American politics, which are also immobilized, look good <laughs> compared to Italian politics. And that's the, the interesting irony with respect to women and even thinking about it, I suppose, in the context of your daughters, that while Rome was the ideal place or a better place for them to come of age as adolescents, it's not necessarily the place you would want to see them grow into adults because of the opportunities that aren't available to them. That's precisely correct. I don't think that is a, a good place to be uh, a, a career-oriented woman. I think that the, uh, the, the sexism uh, there is pervasive um, in ways which are, make America look uh, fabulous. Um, and so, you know, on the one, on the one hand, uh, rape, Italian men don't rape uh, Italian women. The, ra- the rape rate is very, very low. On the other hand, you know, men make judgments. Uh, they, they call out things. They, they will touch. Um, and, you know, they, 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 they have a sense of uh, entitlement. Um, whereas in the United States, you know, men, the, the advance of women has made men very uncertain and very uh, insecure in our, in our masculinity. And so, you know, the only place left for men to assert some sort of masculine dominance uh, is, on the one hand, sports, uh, maybe fighting or killing, and then sex. And so in the United States, love is, uh, love is still seen as something feminine. Uh, it's not in Italy. And so, you know, the, the question is, you know, both countries face enormous challenges. Uh, uh, Italy is how, and, and they're both the same challenge in the sense of how do you, how do you align 
uh, how do you find the philosopher's stone or a re some sort of re, re reformation of the relationship between power and love so women can't live in a world that where they're so powerless in the public sphere uh, in Italy and uh, we can't live in the United States in a world where the very power of women has made love much more problematic for for men. It is a world that, that is so interestingly fraught with irony on so many different aspects. I mean, precisely what you're talking about in terms of the, the sexuality being an empowerment tool for women here in this country. I don't think that it is understood to be a legitimate source of empowerment in the West. Um, it is you know, it's 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 derided. It's um, there is a sort of a de-eroticization uh, that's required of women who want to get ahead. I mean, it's just recently, more recently, with the third wave feminism, where you're starting to get women that can be babes and and uh, power power players as well. But that's relatively recent, and you know, in the main, there's enormous amount of uh, of sanction for. And resistance to women who, um, you know, who, who amplify and manifest uh, their sexual appeal in public space. How did your wife view all of this? Well, Deborah loved and loves Rome. Uh, she uh, is somebody who uh, loves. Um, being able to connect with people in, in public spaces. And, you know, she responded to, to them and they to her. I mean, in a very short period of time, you know, she, she knew all the grocers and, uh, you know, all these women uh, in the community. And um, she, she liked that. And she loved um, the sort of flirtation and the, and uh, the real and the fake courtship that went on. She loved when these, you know, aristocratic Roman guys would kiss her hand, uh, the way in which, you know, people would call out Ciao Bella. And, um, you know, she, she liked that sense of, uh, of, uh, of possibility and recognition of, of sensuousness uh, and beauty that was shared uh, in public. So it made her very happy. And how dramatic was it for her coming back to the States? Well, our initial reaction for both of us was depression. I mean, it, <laughs> seemed, it seemed like a, you know, to go back to a world where the sort of a lot of the juice has been drained out of the public sphere on the street, in a the, in the cafe, in a restaurant. Um, I mean, one of the things that I like about being in New York is the exquisite sociality of the New Yorkers. I mean, the, the way in which they, you know, trade barbs and quips and, and you know, that's, you know, that's very much like, like Rome. But in Rome, there's also this uh, aesthetic and um, uh, sort of sensual and romantic and erotic quality is also allowed to play uh, a major part. And it's, it's kept... It's kept, you know, in the United States, we, we worry that if you, you allow any of that, it's going to lead to violence or it's going to, lead, it's going to be an indicator of, 
objectification or symbolic violence. And, um, you know, in, in Rome, uh, I, I think it's handled uh, with aplomb. Finally, your daughters, do they feel they missed anything by spending the time they did there, or how did they feel about the experience? Well, here's the great trauma of, uh, of the uh, sojourn in Rome, uh, that one daughter who went as a very shy uh, girl uh, found herself on the streets of Rome, and, uh, and it fed her art and, uh, as, a, as a dancer, as a choreographer, as a photographer, I mean, you know, when she went, she was 13 years old, but uh, 12, 13, 14 years old, but, um, and she loved it, and she blossomed, uh, and uh, it's, it was the first uh, place where she felt, you know, empowered to, to come out and be in the world, whereas our other daughter, Hannah, um, who was, who went as a very aggressive, uh, incisive, analytic mind who feared nothing um, because of some incidents of uh, sexual harassment and one of assault, um, you know, was traumatized by that. And uh, although there's no question in my mind that it said her in many, many ways, and she learned a lot, uh, it was a very heavy price to pay. And uh, it was, and, and part of the price was in terms of my failure to respond appropriately um, when it happened, uh, in part because I just didn't want to see it. Overall, you glad you did it? Indeed, indeed. I still pine for Roma. Roger Friedland, the book is Amour, an American Father's Roman Holiday. Roger, I thank you so much for spending time with us today. It was a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. We'll take a break. I'll be right back. 